when the tear gas and everything was dispersed, you were in a flight or fight mode, but we weren't fighters, so we were in a, a flight mode. It was how you were going to get from down here and get out of the way of the dogs or the policemen, basically. And then along the way, we had to stop and help other persons out. On December 15, 1961, 10 days before Christmas, over 1,500 black college students marched to downtown Baton Rouge, Louisiana, where they peacefully protested the arrests of 23 Southern University students. The college students stood across the street from the courthouse when police doused the protesters with tear gas, sick dogs on them, and arrested many of the students. The brutal treatment of the marchers led to a Supreme Court case that secured the protection of protesters as a First Amendment right. I'm Natalie Boyd, a podcast producer with USA Today. Sylvia Copper was a freshman at Southern University when she was suspended for her participation in the historic protest. She knew the risks involved, but was steadfast in her decision. Sylvia met with producers on the very street where the protest took place. There is some background noise from a fountain nearby as Sylvia reflected on the events of that day. This is the Seven Days of 1961 podcast. Hear history from the people who made it. I personally wanted to get involved in the demonstrations because all my life we had to go to the back of the bus. When I was in elementary school, we had a priest called Father Brown. And we would play ball in the streets at the school. But there was a... Uh, a playground right across the street from the from the school that we couldn't go in. So Father Brown told us one day that we shouldn't be playing in the street, we should be playing in the park. So we raised the fence up and some of the kids went <laughs> under the fence to start playing in the park. So what happened was some people let the police know that we were there and that was my first experience with dealing with, with uh, demonstrating. Sylvia began protesting as a very young child. She never accepted the way things were, and she became involved in the civil rights movement as a college student, where she joined the Congress of Racial Equality. I was at Southern University in, uh, in 1961, and that was the time that I got involved with the movement on campus. I may have been something like 18 or 19 or something like that. We would have the meetings at church. And Reverend Cox and other members of CORE, you know, they would brief us on the purpose of the organization, how it would, it would affect everybody in general. They said that it would make our lives better. We would be uh, having access to better education and just to be able to, to do things that we hadn't been able to do up until that time. So this was a, a good reason for me to do it, so that I can have more exposure and to, to be able to, to deal with some of the better things in life that we weren't capable of dealing with before the Civil Rights Act. The activists in Baton Rouge set a two-part plan into motion. Phase one, 
perform sit-ins at white lunch counters and picket stores that refused to desegregate. They knew they would have to be arrested and jailed over the Christmas holidays. It was planned that the students would go and sit in and press at the lunch counters and picket. So when the students went into press, it was a 10 cent store, five and dime store. They sat at the lunch counters and they were picketing outside. They knew they were gonna be arrested. On December 14, 1961, 23 students from Southern University were arrested while peacefully protesting discriminatory businesses. They were processed and held in jail on the fourth floor of the Baton Rouge courthouse. Ronnie Moore, chair of CORE in Baton Rouge, quickly prepared students for the second phase of their plan. On December 15th, they would march on behalf of the 23 arrested picketers. The reason for coming down to the courthouse basically was to give the students who were on top of this building, that was the jail, to give them support and let them know that, that they weren't in the fight alone, that we were here to help them out. It was a cold, rainy day. The rain had stopped, but it was still cold. I remember that I had a beige overcoat on, kind of camel hair overcoat, because it, it was cold and damp. The day started like, uh, just like a regular day, and we knew where we were going. We knew that we were going downtown. We would have to meet at the railroad tracks, and we would get out our marching orders or instructions from the leaders, like Ronnie Moore, some of the other uh, students, and we would start our, our pilgrimage downtown Baton Rouge to, to come and give support to, to the persons who were arrested and housed in, in the jail here. The students began the seven-mile march from Southern University to the courthouse. I don't remember a whole lot of talking going on. Everybody was quiet and orderly, and some of the white people that may have passed, purposely passed, on the side where the water would splash on you. But other than that, I wasn't afraid. I had been going to the trainings. They taught us how to protect ourselves if we were attacked by disgruntled persons or from the police department. Nobody was disrupted. They knew what they were coming to do and what they were doing it for. And I think everybody basically was ready. <laughs> And when they saw us coming, they started yelling and was happy to see us. And we started, you know, conversing, talking back and forth to them. The protesters lined the sidewalk across the street from the courthouse and eagerly greeted their comrades through the jail's windows. And across the street, over 300 police officers stood on the sidewalk outside the courthouse, wielding tear gas, revolvers, and submachine guns. And one officer in particular, I could remember him. He was just talking and gyrating. And he had this canister, tear gas canister, in his hand. And he was just 
talking. I don't know if he was demonstrating something or whatever. But it got away from him, and it fell on the street. So when it hit the concrete, it dispersed. So when his dispersed and it fell on the concrete, all the other officers who were lined up, they started throwing their canisters. And this is how everybody got, was inundated with tear gas that was, that was thrown at us. When the tear gas and everything was dispersed, you were in a flight or fight mode, but we weren't fighters, so we were in a, a flight mode. Everybody was surprised because everybody just turned around. All the houses were there. They ran through the alleys and just mowed the fences down. I mean, when the people came home, I know they were surprised because they didn't see any fences. The fences were just laying flat on the ground because the kids just turned around and knocked the fences down. So everything on this side of the street was residential, and that's where the students were. So we used the, the hose pipes and the, the hydrants that were on the side of people's houses to try to wash the uh, tear gas out of their eyes to keep them burning and because they were having problems seeing Anna and it was real painful. The, the policemen had dogs with them in this area. So when all the pandemonium happened and the students started running, this is when the dogs were released. The police chased the students, beat them with nightsticks, and placed them under arrest. The actions of the Baton Rouge Police Department spurred a case that went to the United States Supreme Court four years later. The court determined that protesters could not be punished for peaceful demonstrations, guaranteeing First Amendment rights for future generations. It was how you were going to get from down here and get out of the way of the dogs and the policemen, basically. And then along the way, we had to stop and help other persons out who had problems with the, with the tear gas. Or if somebody fell down, you know, just, just, to, just to do things to, to help everybody along and just to find our way back to campus. And the coat that I had on when I got back to the dormitory, when we were dropped off, I don't even know how I got back. To, I think I got a, back to uh, campus on a bus. But the coat that I had on was so full of tear gas that it hung in the bathroom and the dormitory for two weeks before the smell was gone. That's how strong it was. It was really an experience. And when I got back to the dormitory, all I could do was take a shower and, and get in the bed and just reflect on, on what had happened. Everybody just went about their way. I don't even remember people moving around too much on campus after that. I think they were just trying to digest what had just happened. But administration had to deal with the, the powers that be. The all-white Board of Education ordered nine students be expelled from Southern University due to their participation in the December 15th protest. And because we were in the movement, we were expelled from school. They said we were aiding and abetting and in the movement and causing disruption on campus. So 
I think I stayed out for a semester, not not longer than a year, and I was able to return. But some of the students who participated were not able, uh, you know, to return to school. They wanted to make sure that the president uh, would control the, the students who were on campus and make sure that they wouldn't have another uprising. Or they would lose their jobs or whatever, you know, that's what, the, that's what basically happens when you do something that people don't like, <laughs> who are in control. So, and for whatever the reason, uh, for some of the things that happened, we also understand that, that that was their job and certain things that they have to do for, to, keep, to maintain their jobs and keep their jobs. So it was nobody felt any animosity or anything to any, any of the administrators or whatever it is on campus. Because in fact, we had a dean called U.S. Jones. He would come down and bring money for the kids to put on their book, the, the kids that were uh, that were jailed from the demonstration, he would come down and leave things for them so that they can know that people are still with him and still backing him. Sylvia went back to Southern University and graduated with a degree in nutrition. She is now a legislative researcher for the state of Louisiana. But she feels that the country has only gotten slightly better and that there is still a need for protests. I think we need more of it today because after a while when you when you reach a point that you you reach the goal, but really the demonstrations just kind of just started something that wasn't completed as far as I'm concerned because we're still having problems. People are still in denial. They don't think they're prejudiced. They think we are right. They think black people are all right. So I really, I really wish that they would still have, have had more of it and to be able to, to overcome some of the, the disparities that we still have. But it presents itself in a different manner or a different kind of way. And like with Black Lives Matter, I think we, we still need it, but it, I think it's done differently from when we did it. But I think it should be a continuous thing, really. Because after something happens and everybody go home, it's just kind of like business as usual. And we're still in the same rut that, we were, that we've been in all along. With education, our job, just across the board, the same things are basically there, except that we don't have to ride at the back of the bus. We can go to some places to eat, but I think that's as far as we've come. We still have a lot to work on. We still have a lot to work on. The Seven Days of 1961 podcast is produced and edited by me, Natalie Boyd. Bailey Loosemore reported on this episode and Jasper Colt produced the interview. 
You can see images of Sylvia and you can read Bailey's story to learn more about this protest at 7days1961.usatoday.com. Thank you for listening. Tell your friends about the podcast. We want more people to hear these personal stories about acts of resistance that helped end segregation. Please write us a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps more people find the show. This is our final episode. We really appreciate you joining us to hear these civil rights veterans tell their stories in their own words. We love to hear from you. Tweet us at USA Today or email us at podcasts at usatoday.com.